today we're going to be looking at the mind's effect on the progress of the gospel. So again, um, I quickly chose this passage um, really for two main reasons. One, it's one I preach a lot to myself. And the second reason is it's one I, um, that just seems to come up and we work out of um, in different counseling sessions, whether that's in redemption group or whether that's outside of redemption group. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. So Heavenly Father, um, I just thank you again for this opportunity to come and share your word. I pray that what I have to say would be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray that what I have to say would be strengthening and unifying for our church. And again, Lord, I ask that you would be honored and glorified and your presence would be felt and experienced by all of us. Um, okay, so I just thought, you know, here we are at the end of the book of Philippians. And I don't know if you're like me, but somehow by default, my mind always thinks Philippi is like some small little rural community when really nothing could be further from the truth. I blame it on the fact that it's a small book because Romans, Corinthians, Corinth, I never think of those things. But with Philippi, I have a hard time remembering that it's actually a large metropolis where this church is found. If you remember, um, Philippi is in Macedonia, which is just north of Greece. Across the sea is going to be Italy with, of course, you know, main city Rome, Roman Empire being there. And Philippi has been part of the Roman Empire for some time. It's a colony there. But because it's such a prosperous city and it covers a large extensive territory, it enjoys the status of being an official Italian city, which means a couple of things. First thing it means is that the colonists don't have to pay some taxes that others would have to. And it also means that the colonists um, enjoy the privilege of being full Roman citizens with all that goes along with that. The other thing that it means that I think is interesting is that Latin, not Greek, would have been spoken on the streets. And I think that's interesting because out of the leaders that we've heard about so far in Philippi, all of them have Greek names, except for one. Only Clement is a Latin name, which might signify those who have been most open to hearing the gospel in Philippi that maybe it's not those people who are in the more privileged status, but maybe those who, for various reasons, cultural, um, find themselves more on the outskirts. Um, and when we look at the different people that we've learned about so far in Philippi, I think that just gives us a further understanding of what this church was like and what environment this church was in. So right first we learned about Lydia, whether she's a Lydian, or her name is Lydia. Either way, she's not from Philippi. She's had to come to Philippi because of her work. And she's actually done quite well and prospered, so much so that she's most likely the head of her household, which although that was permitted in Roman culture, it wasn't exactly mainstream. And I would think it's not illogical that as she went about life and business, and interacted in society, she might sometimes have to say, no, no, there is no male head of the household. I'm actually the head of my household. And she uses that prosperity, of course, to house um, the first church, like George preached on. And then another thing that we know about her is she's described as a worshiper of God, 
which might mean a couple of things. It might mean that she was a Hellenistic Jew, which so Hellenistic Jews, um, there were three factions of Jews, so you'd have the Hasmoneans who were like, enjoyed power in Judea, um, Herod the Great would be connected to them. Then, of course, you had the Pharisees who were very strict adherents to the law. And the Pharisees would be outspoken against the Hasmoneans. And they'd also be outspoken against this other uh, group of Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. And those are Jews who stayed believed in Jewish theology. However, they fully immersed themselves in Greek culture. So several gave up their long beards and flowing robes for rimmed hats, shorter togas, and higher sandals. Scandalous, I know. But um, <laughs> so if she were a Hellenistic Jew, she'd kind of be a mixed bag in culture and religion because she's a Jew, but she's fully embraced this Greek lifestyle. Or she might be a God-fearing Greek, which is sort of the same thing, only different. This time she's a Greek, who's sympathetic to Jewish theology, but just hasn't fully embraced or converted to Judaism. So we see just, again, that mixed bag that she represents, different, a mixture of culture and religion. And then the next person that we've learned about in this city of Philippi is a young slave girl who's exploited by the powerful, influential businessmen in the city. Um, because she's possessed by a demon, and she's able to prophesize. And when Paul and his co-workers are kind of fed up with her following them around and casts out the demon, those powerful, influential businessmen get so upset. In fact, I think they accuse Paul and his co-workers of upsetting and unraveling all of Roman culture by freeing this young slave girl. And they're the same ones who cause, incite a riot, cause Paul and his co-workers to be beaten, and then Paul and his co-workers land in jail. And that's where we really see the third person representative of this city, and that would be the Philippian jailer, who does convert to Judaism, Judaism, does convert to Christianity, but, and he's probably the one who's most enjoys um, that privileged mainstream Roman citizenship because he has that authority of being over prisoners for the Roman government. So when we just quickly, you know, kind of scan the city of Philippi, it's anything but a small, rural, homogenous community. It's really a large, diverse, multicultural, big mixture of people culturally, religiously, socioeconomic status, generations, lots of different generations in there. And we can understand why Paul maybe needed to address unity in this church. And when I think about that church, and I think about our church, I don't think we're that different. Here we are in a large, prospering city, an extensive area, the Twin Cities. A lot of us aren't from here. We've come from different areas due to school or work. There's different generations here. It can be hard to kind of connect and get each other when we're from different cultures. I mean, I'm from Tampa, Florida, and my mother's from Jersey. I mean, I struggle sometimes with Minnesota nice. You know, I just think it's honoring if you're honest and direct. 
And sometimes I just feel like people don't think I'm honoring them when I'm being direct and honest. <laughs> and there's those difficulties that we have to overcome. And so George has been going through and done a great job of um, highlighting those different obstacles to unity that we can have experience for the sake of the progress of the gospel. And so I wanted to highlight three of them. Um, I think the first main one that George has um, gone over that Paul shows is sufferings, how sufferings can be obstacles to unity for the sake of the progress of the gospel. And those first, you know, physical sufferings that Paul experienced at the hands of the influential who were concerned and nervous that maybe what Paul was doing with his message was going to upset their ruling, their power, their influence that they have. And so he was physically beaten. He was put in jail. And I know there's people in our church who have experienced, at the very least, discrimination due to those who are in power and influence. I know there's people in our church who have experienced systemic injustices, problems with the justice system in our country, in our state, in our city, in our local area. And that can be an obstacle to unity for the sake of the gospel. Because when you've suffered like that, and others haven't, it's sometimes hard to feel united to them. Because you think you don't know, you don't get what I've gone through. And it can be easy to stay a little aloof, maybe a little distrustful, a little disdainful, and it's hard to stay united with other people. But that's not the only suffering Paul talks about in chapter 3. George also went over how we can experience suffering due to the Judaizers. I think Paul calls them um, evil dogs and mutilators of the flesh. People who have such a strict adherence to religious laws and codes and customs and traditions, but they're devoid of anything having to do with God or faith in God. And they can persecute, and they can unravel people's stability and confidence, emotional wellness. You can understand why Paul would call them mutilators of the flesh. And I know, too, in our church, there, we have varied religious experiences. And some of us grew up in homes or had religious backgrounds where there was a lot more emphasis placed on codes and customs and traditions that had nothing to do with God or faith in God. Or even some of us have experienced abuse under the guise of religion. And you can understand again why that's synonymous to a person mutilating the flesh, of really abusing someone in the name of religion. And again, when we experience those sufferings, it can be hard, even to the point where those sufferings have been abused, it can be hard to feel connected to others. It's an obstacle to unity for the sake of the gospel. And then the next area that George covered um, intertwines and connects to that a lot. We can experience conflicts 
because of our different cultures, because of our different experiences, because of our different genders, because of being in a different generation. People don't get me, people don't understand. And so I better look out for my own interests, even if it's at the expense of other people. Because if I'm not looking out for my interests, I don't know who's gonna take care of me. And it's real easy, too, to slip into putting your confidence in the flesh. This is one I have to preach to myself a lot. Because for me, a lot of times, putting my confidence in the flesh, in what I can do, in what I can make happen, feels pretty safe. Because I'm not sure who else is going to look out for my interests. But in truth, it's just another obstacle to being unified for the sake of the progress of the gospel. When I'm going to look out so much for myself and make sure I'm taken care of, that I'm not considering other people. And I think that's one we can understand in our culture where humility isn't really respected or encouraged. Making sure you can do, making sure you can accomplish, making sure you can get what you need to get is encouraged. And the last area that George um, preached on last week is internal tensions. And again, when we all try to come together from our different areas, from our different cultures, from our different perspectives, our different ways of looking at things, it can be real easy to have tensions instead of being united. And it's an obstacle to unity for the sake of the progress of the gospel. For myself, I think this church does a great job of honoring and encouraging women to use their gifts and opens up opportunities for that. But it doesn't mean that I'm immune or never experienced tensions in leadership, similar to what George preached on last week with Yodia and Sintike. And when I reflect on that, like, why do I still feel tensions because I'm a woman? You know, I think just gender-wise, we interact differently socially, which in a lot of ways is good. Like, as I was reflecting, I'm, I'm not going to call up George <laughs> or any of the elders and be like, hey, you want to go for a walk? Just spend some time together? <laughs> you want to get together for coffee? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I might call up being a butler and be like, you want to go for a walk and catch up? Um, and likewise, they're not going to call me up and be like, hey, you want to go do Frisbee golf? And sometimes in those social interactions, you know, that's when life is shared and ministry is done. And I might be forgotten or neglected. Um, and if that's my focus and that's my mindset and that's kind of my demand, it's not just going to unravel unity. It's going to annihilate it. There's not going to be unity there. And so up to this point in um, Philippians, George has done a great job of reviewing this. Paul preaches on all these different obstacles to unity for the progress of the gospel. And he's told us um, conduct, Paul I'm talking about here, Paul has told us conduct we should be having instead of these obstacles that we can get entwined in, embedded in. Um, things like uh, we should follow Christ's example and be humble. We should um, rejoice. <laughs> That's in there a lot. Um, we shouldn't complain or dispute. But up until this point of the letter, he hasn't told us how yet. 
How in the world do I rejoice when my very life, my physical wellness might be at stake? I mean, how do you do that? How do you follow Christ's example and be humble when nobody else is even acknowledging you? How do we not have internal tensions and strife when we come from so many different areas and genders and generations and even religious experiences? How do we do this? And so to me, this section of the letter is like, it's like the crescendo in music. You know how those um, symphonies played by orchestras or even our hymns or something, you just hear them, I don't know how they do it, but you just hear the music building to emphasize a part of the song or part of the lyrics. And to me, that's what I hear when I read this part of the letter. And so he reminds us one more time, because it doesn't hurt to say it, rejoice. He tells us to be reasonable. I notice um, Tim's version said gentleness, so gentleness, reasonableness, um, which just means being steady, not shifty, not easily thrown about. And then he tells us how. How do we rejoice when we're suffering? How do we not push out others so we can be taken care of? How do we do this? Verse 5, being confident that the Lord is at hand, which you could translate it another way. Being confident that the Lord is near, that the Lord is, I mean, I'm just talking about God Almighty here, creator of everything, rose Jesus Christ from the dead, that he is right here with us. But if my mindset is on something else other than the Lord is right here with me, if my mindset is on trying to grit my teeth and overcome suffering, if my mindset is, I need to be free of adversity and not have struggle and not have suffering, not have discrimination, not be disregarded, I need to be appreciated, I need to be understood. If that's what my mindset is on, the result is that I will be unstable, unreasonable, at best, maybe my, my stability or my reasonableness is periodic. Quickly fleeing, temperamental, and really what comes out of our lives is the evidence of anxiety, which Paul warns us against, not to be anxious. Really what comes out of our life when our mindset is on other things other than the nearness of God, what comes out of our life is things like moodiness, irritability, quick to argue. And at least for myself, I know when my mindset is on these other things, sometimes I can't even pray. I'm so anxious that even when I try to pray, all it is is me ruminating over the situation that's making me anxious. I'm not even praying. And maybe you've had a similar situation. Maybe there's an especially distressing situation you found yourself in, whether it has to do with your marriage or not being married or a child or losing a child or work, trying to 
it's been one for me this year, just trying to be able to accomplish, do what I feel I need to do at work, and I can't. And then somebody comes up and tells you, well, just, you share it, and they say, well, just pray about it. And you think, it doesn't do any good, or I can't. And that's probably because our prayer time, our mind is set on the anxiety and the difficulty of the situation. And our mindset is not set on the Lord is right here at hand. The Lord is near. But when we can just set our mindset on the truth and the reality that the Lord is near, we can overcome. We can overcome the entanglement of the anxiety. And we're freed to pray, to even pray with thanksgiving. And if you've made that shift, you know what I mean. You know how it's different to just be trying to pray, but chasing your tail in anxiety. And then just resting in the Lord's presence and control and care and still be able to present your requests, but in a restful, peaceful way. And so that confidence in the Lord's presence and his nearness frees us and protects us so that we can pray. Pray even with thanksgiving. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about in the next section. God, I mean, if, if we remember that God is the one sharing this with us through Paul, it's God who's letting you know, hey, I'm right here with you. And he promises that his peace will protect your heart and your mind in the midst of any situation. I had a friend, or I still have a friend, um, who struggled with um, alcoholism. And when she took some intentional steps to overcome it and to get sober, she had a mentor, and the mentor said to her, what do you really want? And she said, I just want to be free of all the crazy stuff in my head. I just want peace. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know and trust that he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross to pay the punishment for our wrongdoings, and then he conquered all the sin, the curse of sin, by resurrecting from the dead, if you trust in that and believe in that, you have the promise that God is near to you. God is always present with you. His spirit even indwells you. And you have peace. And you have the promise that his peace will protect your heart and your minds. The emotional seed of your being, your choices, your wants, your desires, your thought life. He will protect it. And that's really the second thing I think that we can see from this passage. 
is that when we can be confident and grounded in the reality that God is right here with me, he's at my right hand, he's at hand, then we are free. We are free to think on what is good and what is lovely and what is praiseworthy and what is good. And the friend I was just mentioning, her mentor said something else to her. She said, you know, you can't have two thoughts at once. So think on what is good. Think on what is praiseworthy. Think on what is lovely and pure and right. And if you can't think about anything else, at the very least, you should be able to think that it is good that the Lord is with me, that the Lord is at hand. But I think that's part of our problem sometimes. That can be our attitude. At the very least, God is with us. How many times have you ever heard or said to yourself, all I have left now is God. It's all I've got. I mean, would anybody ever say, all I have left now is a million dollars. It's all I've got. And yet we say that about God and his presence. That's all we have left is God. I think the problem is, in those moments, God isn't enough for us. And really, we're saying, I need God plus something else. Yeah, that's great. God is here. But I need God plus being recognized. I need God plus a life of sickness, free of sickness. I need God plus being healed of this illness or being freed from this suffering. The very presence of God isn't quite enough for me. Or God is just something I step on to get to what I really want. I don't see him as the joy, the crown, as God. And so I would challenge each of us, I challenge myself in this when I'm experiencing anxiety and stress, I would challenge each of us, what do you want more than anything? What do you want so badly that you're going to sacrifice unity with others? You're going to sacrifice unity in our church, unity with leaders, unity with your spouse, unity in your house church. Is it to be right? I just have to be heard. I just have to be recognized. As a spouse, is it, I just have to be appreciated, or a parent, I just have to be appreciated or respect it? Because when we think we need that more than anything else, we're not guarded and protected by God's perfect peace, because we've gone to something else. But all God is saying is know and be confident and secure that he is right here. And when our minds are set on that unwavering confidence that the Lord is near, the Lord's present, the Lord is at hand, we're freed. We're freed to serve. We're freed to be thankful. We're freed to pray. We're freed to think. We're freed to be united with one another for the sake 
of the progress of the gospel. And that's how our reasonableness is known to others. And so just in closing, when we can be grounded and secured in the Lord is present, we're all united because we're all united to his present with each of us individually and corporately. And the overflowing result of that, of that confidence, is a united community, united households, united marriages for the sake of the progress of the gospel. So let me pray for us.